Greetings, superstars. Welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz, your one-stop 5D superhero listening spot. I'm Danny Katz, transformation agent, empowered badassery coach, and quantum languaging consultant. And I'm so happy you're here. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated version of yourself. We do this by sharing quantum languaging upgrades, conscious communication tools, witchy life hacks, planetary service announcements, and high-vibing, deep-diving conversations with original thinkers, visionary weirdos, and rebel badasses. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. <laughs> Be sure to hit that subscribe button and to join us on Locals at dannycats.locals.com where you can watch the video versions of all our episodes including those that are a little bit too spicy for the non-free speech friendly platforms. And it's also where paid subscribers can tune into the second half of all my interviews and enjoy a plethora of other bonuses, including live monthly Q&As, unpublished writings and videos, and behind the scenes intel. Join our quickly growing tribe of high vibe superstars at dannycats.locals.com. Okay, now that we've got all our housekeeping out of the way, let's enjoy today's episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today I am joined by Robert Phoenix of 11th House Astrology, Five Minutes of Flame, and so much more. I have been wanting to talk to Robert for a couple years now about something very specific that's a little too spicy for this first public hour of the show. So you definitely want to stay tuned for the second hour, which is available on my Patreon page, patreon.com slash dannycats, as well as on my locals for paid subscribers there, which is dannycats.locals.com. As well, because we went through down so many deep and windy rabbit holes we had a very short amount of time for what I actually wanted to talk to Robert about, which is why you'll want to stay tuned because in the next few weeks, I'm going to be having Robert back to pick up the conversation. In the meantime, this is such a juicy one. Buckle up and enjoy my conversation with Robert Phoenix. Welcome back to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I'm so blessed to be joined by astrologer, cultural critic extraordinaire, Robert Phoenix today. Robert, how are you? Danny, I'm doing great. Let's just, let's just get it right up front. I'm doing great. And even if I'm not, you fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> totally, completely. Yeah. You look great. Well, thank you. Yeah, you look, you look great too. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I had the pleasure of visiting your neck of the woods a couple weeks ago, and I had the best Indian pakoras I've ever had at a gas station in Junction. Do you by any chance know what I'm talking about? Well, I know Junction. I don't know about the Indian pakoras, particularly in Junction, but Texas is weird like that. You'll find like these weird little places every now and then. And um, I remember, we, I'm not sure if it was Junction. It might've been Junction. Anyway, we were headed out towards New Mexico mm -hmm. and we stopped at this gas station in the middle of nowhere that was obviously run by an Indian family and you could smell the food. I mean, you could smell that they were making legit food in the middle of bumfuck Texas, you know, where these oil guys would come in every now and then probably get gassed up, you know? Yep. So, so yeah, you'll find them every now and then here for sure. I was impressed. I'm a snob. I've spent a lot of time in India. I'm a snob about Indian food. And yep. I can honestly say, I think these are the best pakoras I've ever had. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Might have to track them down. Yeah. I, I'll see if I could figure out which gas station it was. <laughs> I wonder if it's the same one or, or maybe it's like, you know, how, how they have the Patel family and they all run hotels. Right. Or maybe, maybe there's a, some kind of pakora gas station pakora family. 
you know. Maybe it seemed like a bizarre anomaly, and it was great. After two days on the road, it was wonderful. And the St. Vincent de Paul in Fredericksburg was so fun to play in. <laughs> oh, really? You you went to the uh, the local thrift store here? Yes, it oh, was cool. awesome. Good, excellent. Yeah, that used to be my favorite thrift store in Santa Fe, but they didn't make it through the the thing that we're going through. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they used to do, we have a Goodwill here too, right? And uh, they used to do these auctions at the Goodwill, which I hated, by the way. Because mm -hmm. if I really want something, I usually want to overpaying for it. I remember getting into a bidding war for um, an old school blender. One of those, you know, what do they call them? The master juicer blenders, the, you know, the ones that, that cost you $500 new. Yeah, with like the Rolls Royce motors in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, so there was this one that I thought, oh man, this is great. It's got the really original motor and the, the uh, pictures on the new ones um, are, they're, they're plastic. You can see through them. This one's like metal, mm -hmm. right? So, so I'm like, I really want one of these things. I don't want to pay $500 even at Costco. I'm going to go into this auction. I'm going to bid on this thing. And I got into a bidding war with this dude. And I was like, I spent way more than I wanted to, but I didn't want to lose. So it was like, fuck you. I'm getting this, this juicer. And I think it was $175. Um, yeah. So, but they, but they ended, they ended the auctions, which I'm actually grateful for because even though it's kind of cool and everything, you get to, you know, have this weird little community because the, the same people would show up every week. Right. Like the, the, you know, the, these were the uh, auction rats. Right. And, you know, and I, it's not like I was friends with any of these people, but I'd go to a few. This is in, in Austin and Oak Hill. You just see them show up again and again and again. And I'm like, okay, you, I feel like Goodwill's gouging people here. Like you're gouging people on this stuff. Just put it out for sale like everybody else and first come first serve. And that was one of the things that the, the thing changed that I actually like because they didn't want people meeting together to do these auctions. I'm like, thank you. Just put it back in the floor and, you know, let's yeah. just see what happens. Right? Just sell it. Yeah. Just sell Our it. Good Goodwill in Santa Fe is ridiculous for a couple of reasons. One, it's the most expensive Goodwill I've seen in the country. Everything there is overpriced, which makes no sense given how poor New Mexico is. Yeah. And when I first moved here in 2011, I found um, a set of David Data CDs. It was like, you know, one of his sex courses. And I was like, score, but there was no price on it. And I brought it to the front and I said, there's no price on this. And she got really concerned looking and, she, and she's like, oh, I'll be right back. And she went in the back to an office and she came out and she said, I'm not allowed to sell this to you because it's sexual material. And I said, great, I'll just take it. And she's like, no, we have to burn it. And oh, I, wow, really? I was like, what, but I want to give you money. Like you don't want it. Cause you're offended. I want to give you money for the greater good you allegedly serve, but instead you need to burn it. Like what century oh. are we in? Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. I, I bet you, I bet you in some other goodwill somewhere that you probably would be able to buy that. Yeah. It, Santa right. Fe is just like a weird kind of its own dimensional anomaly in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I like Santa Fe, but talk about a disparity in wealth and poverty. It's like enormous there. It's um, crazy here. They have like I have a friend here who grew up on the res and his family still doesn't have running water. And then where I live, which is on a golf course, I just found out they have a pool. So I called today how much it would be to sign up for membership to use the pool. And they said seventy five thousand dollars a year. Right. Oh, yeah. They'll hit you with that. I even. I was in a situation like that back in the early 2000s in Escondido, which isn't even remotely close to being like Santa Fe. Right. And they had a pool there and they had a country club. And I remember it was like, even then it was really expensive for us. I think it was somewhere, something like 1500 or $2,000 a month. And I'm like, you know, forget that. I'm, That's crazy. You know, it is. And they had a golf course too, but I don't, I mean, I've golfed, but I don't golf. And it was, it was really shocking because I think we went back there, me and, and my mother and my son, I think we went back there probably around 20, maybe 2010 or 2011. Um, and I was, I was really astounded. I think it was maybe 2011. I was astounded by what had happened to that area. The golf course had just 
gone completely dry. They weren't using it anymore. Um, it, it was just like, wow, this place just went to shit. Um, and I don't, I don't know what happened to the country club, but uh, it was just, it was just weird. It's Southern California water desert and like the earth reclaiming itself ultimately. Well, I like that idea. It's bizarre that the golf courses are always in the deserts where it makes the least amount of sense and rapes the most resources. Like, yeah, like, like Scottsdale is ridiculous. Yeah, it's you it's know. super cuckoo. Or or even Palm Springs. Like, why here for all the golf courses? Right. So there's this theory that the golf courses have been designated as places to cover up sort of the Tartarian remains of a certain area so there's a whole there's a whole series of youtube videos that gets into golf courses oh that's and, interesting yeah and golf courses are like it's a completely masonic sport golf right like when you look at uh you know the uh, the the two ball cane you know the so it's like a cane that looks like a like a golf club yep but then there's also two balls there right which is sort of a joke that the masons play with like the two balls of cane and two ball cane the, the character from freemasonry so yeah so golf is a totally freemasonic sport and maybe that's the link between tartaria and and, and freemasonry and that you know they're they're part of the cover-up of this thing so is there a direct link between tartaria and freemasonry well i would say there's probably an indirect link but there's a lot of things that um point to the fact that that you know because they're, they're supposed to be the master builders right right they're the master builders uh and if you look at this whole idea of this thing that i've got behind me which is uh the chicago world's fair the exhibition that supposedly people you know they supposedly they whoever the they were you know who were the uh the architects and the aristocrats and the robber barons of the day they're the ones that supposedly built this but there's obviously huge questions and gaping holes in a lot of these stories. So one of the things that you'll see with Freemasonry is you'll see this, right? Right. You'll see yeah, the, right. Totally. So, right. So we've got secrets and we're not going to tell. Right. It, and then also when you will see some of these random pictures of these Tartarian, what we'd call Tartarian remains, mm -hmm. you'll, you'll see very few people. Like there's not a lot of people around, but the, some of the people you will see will be guys in, in, uh, uh, top hats, like the top hats and the long tail coats. Oh, who are those guys? Right. Cause they're signaling the top hat guys tend to be Freemasonic, right? They're, they're into the lodge, right? They're, sig they're signaling my hat is bigger than your hat. And there's a reason why my hat is bigger than your hat. Interesting. So you'll see a lot of the top hat guys that are connected with these structures. So I would assume that, that this is part of the the big secret and you know and who knows what else that they were able to call from because, because another figure in the whole tartarian story is um joseph smith and uh brigham young mm -hmm. who who are you know they're you know they're they're wild guys right i mean they're they're really into like polygamy and they set the religion up so they could have polygamous relationships and right. have all the, have all these women at their beck and call and joseph smith called a lot of mormonism from freemasonry and he he i he, him and his son i believe wind up getting killed in nauvoo illinois and uh smith was I, I believe decapitated from the waist down like the black dahlia like that's like a ritual killing so you're like because you spilled your guts right mm -hmm. like he took the secrets of freemasonry and he applied them to Mormonism, which which is like spilling your guts. Right. You know, I, th I think that's where we get the term spilling your guts from. It's people that are disemboweled. It's like you you told the secret and now you get to spill your guts. Whoa, yeah. that makes that really resonates. So then uh, Brigham Young moves out to Utah. He's got like maybe 250 people at most. And everywhere the Mormons went, they got into trouble. They started border wars. They were armed. Like they were kicked out of, I think, what was it, uh, Kansas? They were kicked out of Illinois. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and then there's this, and then uh, Brigham Young says, fuck it, we're going to Utah. 
And then you go to Utah and then you look at all these things that are there in Utah. And then <clears throat> supposedly they're the ones that are you know, settling in Utah and building these things. And you look at where, where these structures are, they're like, like in the middle of nowhere, like who's going to, like, how are you getting these, you know, these building supplies and all the things you need to do to make this magnificent structure? How are you getting these things there in a horse and buggy world? And even parts of Salt Lake City, like the Great Salt Palace, which resembles um, the uh, uh, Sutro, the Sutro Baths and the Cliff House, and to some extent, Crystal Palace in, in uh, I think it was at Leeds in England. Mm -hmm. um, that that those it resembles that right the ice palace and i think today they have their their basketball team the utah jazz which is a really weird name but it's such a weird name well they were they were the new orleans jazz originally and then okay. the team moved and they're like well we'll just keep the name jazz because it's so mormon i'm like really like you couldn't they had an aba team called the utah stars it's like why don't you just name your your team the stars right because because you had a team called the stars it would be kind of a cool thing to like have those old stars uniforms and, but, oh no, we're going to be, we're going to be iconoclastic and we're going to be the Utah jazz. So the, you, these people like, like the, the things just don't match up. Right. But you, but again, you can kind of see in some ways the connection between Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith, whom I believe was a Mormon. Uh, I know he's a Mormon. I believe he was a Freemason because he had the secrets, but the, the whole idea ultimately in Mormonism and Freemasonry is this, it's the same goal. And that is to become a God of your own planet. Mm -hmm. And, and if you do all the right things on the front end of Mormonism, and then the back end of Mormonism, you get your own planet, right? It's the same thing with Freemasonry. So they're, they're not too divergent in terms of their end game. Right. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, I think there's a link between the, definitely the Freemasons and this whole Tartaria thing. Um, and I know, I mean, I, I've been tracking your work on Tartaria and, um, and I loved the video that you just, you just did on, um, the Unabomber that got taken down. Oh, the Ted Kaczynski one. Yeah, that was, that was an interesting, uh, video. I put it back up on, uh, it's on rumble. Now people can still look at it. And I, I had been, um, uh, kind of revisiting Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. Because I, I had revisited his manifesto about three or four years ago, and I'm like, this guy was on it. He knew exactly where we were going. He was batshit crazy, but he knew exactly where we were going. And he, he Ted Kaczynski walked his talk, I and mean, he left teaching in Berkeley, and he moved to Montana, and they started to do development around his place, and he lost his shit. And under what auspices did they take that video down? Like what was the alleged violation? I don't know because the other part of the video, because I was contrasting what we would deem and classify as sanity, right? Every, and because Ted, because there was something very off about Ted Kaczynski, even though he's a Gemini. So he's going to be extremely like sane in one area of his life. And then the other area of his life, he's really over the edge. He's right. got a very, very intense chart. Um, but I, but I felt like his message was really lucid, really logical, really rational and really sane. Yeah. I don't think anybody who ha has their feet on the ground, their eyes open, either listen to that or read his manifesto and not come away with the fact that he's kind of nailed this thing. Yeah. Right. And then the other, the contrasting person in this was, uh, Noah Yuval Harari, right. who, who is, um, you know, Klaus Schwab's, you know, fetish boy. Right. And, and, and when you listen to him, he comes across as very lucid and logical and rational, but his ideas are nuts. They're completely insane. And nobody ever calls him on it. Like, he, you know, it's one of these things where the, the emperor has no clothes. Right. Uh, and he'll get up in front of thousands of people and do a TED talk or he'll do an interview with somebody. And I've never once seen anybody really question like, you know, what gives you the right to do this? Or, you know, how do you, how, how could you actually, you know, posit the fact that we're just robots when there's clearly enough evidence to suggest that that's not the case. And, uh, but nobody ever does. Nobody ever calls him on it. Everybody applauds and pats him on his, you know, oversized forehead 
And, <laughs> and um, then he goes off to hang out with his vegan queer queer boyfriend or husband. I think that's the part that got me uh, got that video taken down because I I said that he's vegan and queer, and I don't think that's there's I wasn't lying. He's but vegan. aren't we aren't we all supposed to be vegan and queer these days? Well, right. <laughs> I, it's like and he's he's open about his queer vegan veganism right. so i don't see any problem with that but for whatever reason some somebody on youtube one of their al al algo um you know mods or whatever said okay or sometimes people will complain right that's the other part and somebody might say oh this 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 is terrible right right so um that got taken down and I'll include the link well, to where you reposted it. Cause I really yeah. feel like it's a must watch for what so there, there was right another now. thing. There was another thing in there. I think it was cause I had two of them. And the other one, I think was like a, an astrological one that got taken down. I got a strike for that one. And it had to do with something around, I don't know, the coronavirus or some BS. And I, and I fought it. I fought it. And instead of trying to be, uh, you going back and listening to it and try to make a case for it. I just, I just said, I didn't talk about this. <laughs> I'm like, I, let's try this tack and just deny it. Right. It work? No, I didn't. <laughs> but I thought I'd try it instead of being all, you know, Mr. Legal. Just, I didn't talk about this. You know, I'm when he first hit the scene um, with his books about humans, biology, evolution, like whatever it was, I was immediately suspicious just given how he was out of nowhere on every bestseller list. Everyone was reading him and I've become extremely suspicious of fame, popularity. Like when everyone's reading the same thing, I'm very leery of what that thing is and how it got placed in everyone's hands. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I think a lot of these things are, they're, you know, they're rigged, right? They're rigged. Yeah. And so I'll give you a, a, an actual example of how how it's rigged. So when Whitney Houston came out with her first record, which you know I'm not a big Whitney Houston fan, but I can appreciate the production and the vocals. Like yeah. it was a really really good record. I knew who the producers were, and uh, in order to make sure that that record shipped, I believe back then the definitions of platinum or gold were different, mm -hmm. so they needed to ship it gold. So Clive Davis pre-bought a million copies. Right, he pre-bought a million copies because he knew that that buzz of that record being shipped gold would ensure that it would go platinum. Whoa. Yeah. I wonder so, how often that, that must happen all the time. Well, I think it doesn't happen that much anymore in music because mu music is dead in that way. Right. Like I was talking with uh, Emily on Monday and if I'm not mistaken, the largest downloaded and legally sold band on the internet is Queen, right? Queen, who haven't made a record since, what, the early 90s. I think that was their last record or the late 80s. So what, is it, what does that tell you, right? What tells you, first of all, modern music sucks right. for the most part. I mean, I won't, I won't do a blanket statement because I'm sure, I'm sure I, 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 I've listened to some modern music, some it's really good, uh, but it pales in comparison to the sales for Queen, who seem to kind of, you know, always wind up in this new generational cycle. And mainly because of the movie, which exposed a lot of younger people to Queen. Right. And, and the other fact is that, you know, Pretty Mercury's gay and it's cool to be gay, right? So let's download some Queen. They right. got some great tunes. Uh, but no, I, I, so getting back to Harari, is it possible for them to have purchased the first 100,000 copies of his own book? That's possible. Why not? They got a shit ton of money. I mean, seeing who he's shilling for now, it seems like they were probably in on that from the very get-go, opened all the doors, dropped whatever money necessary, because that was like a sensation. You know, as a writer, right. I'm always tracking the books that fly off the shelves from the get-go. And my spidey sense was like, mm, this is weird that everyone's talking about this. So I'm guessing that they were, I mean, that, that wasn't that long ago. That was what, like 2017, 2018? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I, if you think about it, so let's say for instance they wanted to game the system, and they, okay, we'll we'll go out of pocket for a hundred thousand copies, and we'll get them at a slightly discounted rate, whatever, right? Um, 
and maybe we'll do a write-off. And who who knows who's even doing that? Is it his publishing company? Is it somebody that's supporting him? But once it gets on the New York Times bestseller list, then what you do is you've got maybe about half a dozen key critics and and uh, tastemakers, right? Influencers. Right. And then you get them to do positive reviews. You don't have, not everybody has to do a positive review. You just need like about five or six really influential people. Right. Maybe something in Wired Magazine, uh, maybe something in the New York Times, whatever. Now, now all these things are coming out simultaneously. They're all sounding the same note and the same tone. And then there's a downstream effect, right? And that everybody who sees it and hears it and gets it, all of a sudden, like if they're, they're not, if they're not, parodying or mimicking the upstream effect like maybe maybe they're not smart enough or they're not cool enough right and 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 then because of how how so this is also a really interesting thing about how the new york times became the new york times that we know of today because at one point in time when it was just a paper uh, the new york times more or less was a a semi-respectable newspaper i mean you know, clearly they they rigged the whole thing with 9/11, and and the and the uh, the fiction around 9/11 and selling that story. So, the New York Times does not have a spotless record, but it was at a certain point it was better than it is now. And what happened is that they went to a paywall, and then once they went to a paywall, they realized that the people that were that were going to pay for the New York Times, they weren't paying for like more sort of. Um, neutral, independent content, they were going to pay for content that supported their worldview. Right. Right. So then they started to crank out the Trump hit piece stuff. You know, everything that became what we now know as the New York Times was a byproduct of the paywall. Right. Because because now they're going to craft their content to their consumer. And their consumer is going to go to the New York Times because they have some ridiculous cachet from the past. Right. And, and there's, they're, they're in the echo chamber and, and it feels to me like if you're in the New York times universe as a writer and you write something, well, maybe like Barry Weiss who left the New York times, right. Yeah. All of a sudden you're, you, you're not going to get paid. People aren't going to read your article, right. The, the, the editor, let you know, the editor of the New York times is going to get tons of emails and tons of letters. And like, this is bullshit. You know, I pay for this, you know, and then they'll go, okay no more of this. Right. So, so now we have this weird thing where culture and money and eyeballs are driving content more than ever versus any kind of, you know, real truth or dissemination of ideas. And I think in the Yuval Harari case, the downstream people, they don't want to lose their position, right? They're kind of low. Right. So if they come out and they do, uh, a bad review of Yuval Harari, who knows how long they're going to keep their job. Right. And if, if they're going to have access to other people from that publishing company or whatever. Right. So this thing is rigged to a point where it's really tightly wired. And because the economy now is so sketch, right. That people are almost being socially engineered to do the things that we're talking about. Like this is now what passes for journalism. It's not. It's not journalism at all. It's it's propaganda marketing. That's what it is. Yeah, I really like that. Did you coin that phrase, propaganda marketing? No. I, like I mean, that. I well, I just this just came out of my head. Yeah, because I. I'm that sure if you looked on the internet, you'd find somebody else who said that. But, you know, <laughs> that's the world we're living in now. But that's what it is. It's propaganda marketing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So they create this guy, right? They create him. Right. And Emily and I have talked about this. And one of the things that we've talked about is when you look at his accomplishments, like how does he do all these things? It, you see this across the board with all these so-called really important people. Right. You know, and a lot of the, you know, the, the young leaders of the World Economic Forum, they've got like, you know, five boards are sitting on, they're writing this book. It's like, it's freaking nuts. No human is capable of doing that. I'm sorry. Right. Right. Plus all the press that they're doing. Like that was my thing with Fauci and his, the documentary that came out. I'm like, are you a little bit too busy right now during your, your so-called global crisis to set up film crews and do like, don't you have more important shit to be doing? Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, see, this is, this gets into the creation of like um, influencers and culture shapers 
And I think in a lot of cases, they have teams, right? And they and the teams will divvy up whatever it is that they need to do. Okay, well, I'll tackle this and I'll write this paper. We'll have three people over here. We'll write this book. We'll put his name on it. And they just become like a brand and a commodity. But all these things, and they may do maybe out of the six things that are listed on their current CV, they might be doing two. Right. Right. They, they might be doing two if they're lucky. Right. Uh, um they're and outsourcing the rest, the rest. Right. And the rest is just being taken by taken on by, by people that are paid to do that. Right. So they become an industry and under themselves with the idea that, that they will shape the culture, they'll shape the narrative and move, you know, move kind of the, the socio um, kind of socio-technological, you know, curve along. Right. That's, that's how, I think that's how it works. Yeah. And most of these people are, some of them might be actually, interesting and have something worthwhile and might be smart and know what they're talking about. But I think a lot of them are created. I think so too. So jumping back a little bit, our audiences are a bit different. And I'm wondering if you could give like a kindergarten Cliff Notes version, like overview of what Tartaria is and, and why it's relevant now. Sure. And by the way, um, there are some great Tartarian researchers out there. Uh, the two that um, really jump to the front of my head are John Levi and Michelle Gibson. And then um, there's a couple that live in, I think, North Carolina called Mind Unveiled. Uh, and then uh, Andreas Zertus, X-I-R-T-U-S. So these people are, Martin Liedke even has done some incredible work. Mm -hmm. So these are people that this is their main area of focus, right? And I came into the Tartaria world, I think about maybe two years after it really started to explode. There was this woman who, whose, whose name um, escapes my attention right now. I think she was, I think she was Russian and she started to write about Tartaria and uh, and people started to pick up on it. So the, it's, and for me, it was like everything around 2016, it starts to happen. Mm -hmm. And then for me around 2018, I start to, okay, I'm like, I'm not ready for it yet. I know it's there and I'm going to get into it. I just need the right time. And there's right around the end of 2018, I started to peek my head in. Mm -hmm. And then by 2019, I'm like, okay, this is really fucking interesting. And, and then I'm just all in at that point. And, so the basic premise here is that the realm that we live in has gone through at the very least that we can, we can track two major resets. Mm -hmm. One reset seems to be much older um, and is generally typified by this weird kind of hybrid of a building that looks like a mountain or a mountain that looks like a building. Mm -hmm. And you can see a lot of these in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. You can also find them in the Middle East and in places like Italy, Turkey. So something came along and literally melted those structures mm -hmm. and they seem quite old, right? Um, so that's one version of this reset that we're talking about. Another version of the reset, which seems to be much newer, where a lot of these buildings seem to be more intact, is associated with what we call the mud flood. And people have different ideas of what that what happened, right? So uh, John Levi talks about that the top of the realm is a, like an ice dome. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, the ice dome collapses. Mm -hmm. And then the ice melts. And then we have floods and then we have um, uh, the mud flood, right? So I think that's an interesting way of looking at how this thing has happened. There's other ideas about what might've happened as well, because there's, there's some, not just the older structures that look like they're melted, but if you go to a place like, what is it? Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska. I always get Omaha and Kansas city mixed up, but I think it's Omaha, mm -hmm. but they have all these fountains in Omaha. Like it's a city of fountains. And there's this idea and theory that those fountains weren't just decorative, that, that when they were turned on, they created a kind of um, vaporous dome over the, the living space so that whatever heat was coming down from the sky 
would would be offset by their their these the cooling effect of these fountains. Mm -hmm. um, so, and there are some people who believe that that the second reset of the mud flood has something to do with that as well. Uh, so there's a lot of very interesting theories about what's really under our feet. So behind me, what you'll see is a this this is the Chicago World's Fair. It's called the Columbia Exposition. If I'm not is the no the Columbia is I always get it mixed up with the San Francisco. I think this is the Columbia ex, ex, Exhibition. Mm -hmm. This is the Chicago World's Fair. And if you look at these structures in the background, they're like mind blowing. They're just absolutely mind blowing. And when you look at how many World's Fairs there were over a period of time like if you just type in world's fair on on uh, wikipedia you'll see all these freaking world's fairs and they're all happening you know give or take like 1840-ish to about 1918 1919 like that span and they're everywhere like i was born in uh, a place called verdun which is in france and right next to verdun there's a, a town called metz and I looked up and there was a Mets World's Fair. Who knew, right? And you'll see a lot of these structures that all look very similar. And they have this um, commonality that links them to like Roman and Doric columns and kind of, you know, classical Greco-Roman structures. Um, and But also an interesting sort of... Um, you know, I would say mid-century modern, but more like um, uh, what you might call it, uh, uh, like Klimt. That whole sort of uh, uh, what, what's 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 the uh, the the style for that? It's in, it's in my head, but but it, you know it, Maxfield Parish, that whole world, right? So this the interesting new uh, Art Nouveau. It's like this combination of Art Nouveau and this whole kind of Greco-Roman world with all these buildings that are really out of place. In fact, you know you can look over here. They've got waterways, they've got gondolas. Like who builds this, right? And for what reason? And then they have all these strange, like um, the hall of technology or the hall of industry. And they, they're, it's like they're these repurposed buildings and they just stick these like tags on them. And one of the things that shows up in almost all these world's fairs are these incubators, which are very weird. Mm -hmm. So they have these incubators with all these babies at them. Like, what's going on here? Like, why do they have all these incubators with all these babies? It's really bizarre, right? And Jerry Seinfeld's uh, Jerry Seinfeld, in an interview, talks about how his father was um, adopted out of an incubator in Long Island, right? So th there's a history of these incubator babies. What does that even mean? Like, not adopted at an uh no, like no, an orphanage but no. an incubator as though that's its own business model so the whole thing is really weird and there's not a lot of answers mm -hmm. like because it was you would think that okay if we want to show off this new technology of how we could keep a baby safe and secure and warm how many incubators do you need one one maybe <laughs> right and they've got an entire hall full of these things with babies in them. That's weird. So, so yeah, that's really weird. And it coincides with this thing called the orphan trains, which originate uh, in the East coast. Now, to be fair, there were orphans, right? And there were mostly, a lot of them were boys. There were a lot of, there were orphan boys that that's, if you look at uh, Oliver Twist, with um, uh, the movie, the, the well, it's first a book and then it's Dickens. A movie Dickens. Like it's a story of the orphans, mm -hmm. right? And Michelle Gibson believes that people like uh, Dickens and Mark Twain and Jack London and Oscar Wilde and Robert Burns, that they were all hired to create stories to sell the narrative of the new world. Mm -hmm. Like they were in on it, right? Which is kind of an interesting thought and we know that this is true because the cia funded the whole modern art scene mm -hmm. that there i mean there are papers about that right they're like okay we're going to fund the modern art scene which is depersonalized and takes people out of the quote-unquote realism of the modern world right or the world in general so who are the some of the artists that the cia funded uh probably kandinsky uh paul clay rothko 
uh, possibly Jackson Pollock, you know, anybody that's kind of in that new school of cubism, you know, modernism, where it's not, things are just not attached mm -hmm. to the physical world anymore. Um, so those off the top of my head, and I would say probably the, the top of the list what might be Mark Rothko. Okay. And, and, and then there's even connections to that with literature as well, that they were, they were actually funding modern, modern literature too. As you're saying this, I'm envisioning my favorite Rothko that I used to visit all the time at MOCA in LA. And I'm thinking of him and Pollock and Kandinsky and how easy it would be to hide and embed symbols and programming in their pieces. Yep. Yeah, abs absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, but we know that they were, I mean, the papers are there. It's like, I'm, we're not making anything up here. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with, uh, with how literature. Did, how did that serve their, their aims? Well, I think the whole idea is to, is to move people out of the natural world. Mm -hmm. yeah, to create a sense of alienation, isolation, confusion, modernism, postmodernism goes along with the architecture, the brutalistic architectural style. Mm -hmm. uh, you have modern classical music, which is based on atonality, you know, outside of Frank Zappa and a few other people. I'm not really sure who really digs atonality. I mean, it's okay from a kind of a critical perspective. You kind of, kind of understand what's going on, but it's like, I'm not going to really listen to it. I'm going to get into it. Right. And, and so atonality takes you further and further away from things like melody and harmony in orchestral structure and composition, which are all in, in, in some ways theoretically Western motifs, right? Yeah. Theoretical Western motifs. So everything about modernism is a movement away from that and depersonalization, which mm -hmm. leads us into the crisis of the self. Mm -hmm. And then we get into the crisis of the self and the, the dislocation in the 60s, and you have MK Ultra. Um, you know, you have rock and roll and, and LSD and the, the death of important people. And there we go. You know, it's like, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Uh, God is dead, right? So there's, there was a concerted effort, I, if you look at it, to lead people further and further away from things like tradition and things like, um, you know, I, I don't want to use this word in a way that sounds preachy, but even morality, mm -hmm. right? Like lead them further away from morality, whatever that morality tale is, you know, like, like, um, Madame Bovary is a, is a, is a, uh, it's a morality tale, right? This is what happens with Madame Bovary. It's like, if you go down this path, you know, this is what's going to happen to you, mm -hmm. right? You, you know, it's, if you're going to stray outside your marriage, you may pick the wrong person. Right. And you know, that's not to say that, you know, we're just robots and we don't have feelings or attractions other people, but that was clearly a morality tale. It's a really well-written book, but, you know, they were moving further and further away from that until ultimately there really is no morality, right? We, people are making it up as they go along. And now we're at this point where everything's been inverted and morality has become, the immoral has become moral. And you can see that with the, uh, that TV show Dexter, when I saw Dexter, I, and I didn't see that much of Dexter, just a few episodes, but I knew what it was about. And like, well, they're turning a serial killer into somebody who has a sense of morality, mm -hmm. right? He's going to go after bad people. So we're going to, we're going to uh, look away from the fact that he's a serial killer because he's going after the, the right bad people. Right. And right. he's got something in his background that has to do with trafficking and being abused, which now, you know, we can see that it's contributed to his ser serial killer motif. And it's kind of an interesting show in that way. But now I don't think it's, 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 they're not even sticking to that layer of morality anymore. They're there. It's just like, you know, we're everything, everything is just up, up for grabs. So the whole Tartaria thing in a nutshell is this hidden world which is right beneath our feet. Um, and so it's beneath the surface. Part of it is beneath the surface. Cause you could, th there are buildings where you can see that there are three, four floors that they've been able to kind of dig out. And mm -hmm. most major cities have underground cities. Like right. Seattle has a whole underground city. 
And there are, there's big parts of New York that are underground. There's big parts of Washington, D.C. that are underground. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it, right? Now, it's not just the buildings, but there's also levels of technology and things that they might have been in touch with during that time that, for all intents and purposes, we may not be. So the Industrial Revolution, which they call it, which the, the, in this country, it's called the Second Industrial Revolution. The First Industrial Revolution theoretically happens in Europe. Mm -hmm. But that's that's what like, uh, William Blake is writing about, you know, um, in this poem, London. Dickens begins to write about it. And then the second industrial revolution happens in the United States. And, and people that follow the Tartaria thing believe that really what they did is they they took the they, they took the materials that were already here, um, figured out how to back engineer them, repurpose them, scale them down have more of a centralized control over how they worked and who made them and created the new, the second industrial revolution. So it wasn't like a lot of things were developed, it was more like they were found and discovered. And is the conjecture that the beings who were occupying these cities are human or are same species? Well, that's where it gets really interesting. And then you get into the different versions of these resets because there, there's all, when you get into this, it gets very weird mm -hmm. because there are numerous tales and even some of these buildings, they're enormous. Mm -hmm. Like who would occupy such an enormous building? Well, a giant would, mm -hmm. you know, a giant would occupy that building. So there are stories of these, these giants that were, and you can just see in literature, like Gulliver's Travels, you know, the Lilliputians and the giant and David and Goliath. I mean, we, right. you know, Jack, Jack and the being like, why are we talking about giants? Right. Because maybe they were, maybe they were here. Um, and then consequently, there's also like we people, you know, why do we talk about we people? Well, maybe the we people were here. Maybe they were part of this whole thing. And it gets very strange, you know, like it gets into chimeras and um, which I think a lot of chimeras are actually real. I don't think I don't think there What is a chimera? A chimera would be something like a like a griffin. Okay. It'd be like part lion and part um eagle and part um wolf or something like that, right? So, I think a lot of the chimeras were real because they were I think they were playing around with DNA just like they're playing around with DNA now. Mm -hmm. Um and, and get, again it gets really weird like they like there are pictures, <laughs> excuse me, of these people who have no head and they have their eyes and their mouth on their chests and they show up like in a lot of these different illustrations. It's very strange stuff, right? And, but it's so it's hard though to pinpoint, you know, at what point in time these different beings or different species were around. So the theoretical idea for let, let's say this thing right here, America, Tartaria America. Mm -hmm. Um, that the idea is that it was a truly diverse society and that uh, Michelle Gibson, who's done a lot of work on this, talks about in uh, opposition to what we know as Masons, that she talks about the Moorish Masons and that the Moorish Masons were responsible for a lot of these structures. And in the United States or North America, uh, that, that the population was comprised of what we would call uh, blacks who would be Moors. Mm -hmm. um, also a variation of like Native American or, you know, Indio um, culture. Mm -hmm. But there was also what we would call white culture. And if you look at the Cherokee, they're very interesting because you could look at a wide kind of swath of the Cherokee people. They don't look alike. You'll find Cherokee who look black. You'll find Cherokee who look traditionally Native American. You'll find Cherokee who are pale with red hair. And they're the only tribe that had a written language. And when you look at their uh, their dress, you know, they don't look like Plains Indians at all. You know, they're, they're dressed in, you know, dresses and uh, in some instances, suits. And, and it gets really weird when you go into places like um, like Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And and the, so there's very early pictures of Captain Cook and all these people who go to Hawaii and uh, they show up and there are some photos there 
where like the locals are wearing suits. You know, they're wearing suits. They're not wearing grass skirts and, and coconut bras, right? They're not doing that. <laughs> so, so, you know, and Gilligan's Island kind of reaffirms that right, in a weird way. So there, so this, there's this idea that there was this culture that was pretty sophisticated and it wasn't, and of course, and they may have had, you know, maybe, you know, their own border wars or I, I you know, I'm not sure it was just Kumbaya in Tartaria world. Okay. Mm -hmm. But there does seem to be, and I think this is more in Europe in some ways than in the United States, what we call the United States, but there does seem to be this thing that happens where there is destruction mm -hmm. and it's not just a destruction of like worlds, but a destruction of like history, cultures, people, and, and it's big, it's like a big kind of destruction. Um, and so again, this is a lot of people have done a lot of work in this. So I'm sourcing, you know, work that people, but I've looked at it and it actually makes a lot of sense that if you look at like the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. The Ark of the Covenant is, you know, potentially a very interesting thing. It, it, it could, you know, the how did they, you know, live for what is it, forty years in the desert? How did they do that with the Ark when they're in the desert? Right. Well, they, they probably snatched the Ark of the Covenant, where they can actually pull ether out of the air and turn it into mana, mm -hmm. right? So they made their own food with the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was very powerful and it was also potentially a weapon. And, have and you heard the theory that mana is monatomic gold? Yes, I have. And that makes a lot of sense, actually. Mm -hmm. And if and they, they could probably just pull it out of the air. If the air has got a high degree of like uh, minerals, including gold flakes, that would be totally possible. Right. So they'd be able to live off that. It might even raise their vibration or whatever, right? But then there's also these, um, the, you know, do you know what the fasces are? Do you know the fasces? No. So the fascists, if you go to uh, the Senate, right, and you look at, you know, all the zombies on the, you know, at the Senate, behind them, <laughs> behind them, there are these things that look like a bundle of reeds. Mm -hmm. and, the, and they're round. And then at the bottom of the bundle is like a, uh, like a tube that comes out of it. And at the top of the bundle is what looks like a, a very thin axe head. Mm -hmm. Very, very thin. And you look at it and go, well, what is this thing for? Like, if you were going to use it as an accent, it makes no sense as a weapon. Right. None, none whatsoever. But then if you turn it on its side and you hold it like this, mm -hmm. that axe head becomes like an antenna, right? And okay. now it's able, with that tube that comes out of the bottom, mm -hmm. now you might be able to get some kind of a plasma charge out of this thing. So when you see the fascies, there's a reason why you see the fascies, because I think that that's what they used in order to conquer the world and be able to destroy the civilization that went before it. And who's the they? That oh, well, that's an interesting question. Maybe you want to save that for hour number two. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, that's great. Cause I do want to circle back to the, they just how that's being that. And that I think it ties into, I think it ties into Karzaria actually. Okay, cool. So I'm curious, I mean, you are so at the forefront of, of research and figuring out what has really been going on, like in terms of, of worldview destruction and jostling, like how do you navigate? Like I would imagine 2016, you're getting into the Kazaria, or excuse me, to the Tartaria narrative. Like, does that shatter your worldview or has that happened so many times that it's all up for grabs for you? Yeah, I've learned to be kind of fluid in a lot of ways and try not to latch on to things like, well, this is my catechism. Mm -hmm. um, it has been helpful. And the shattering the worldview, I think for me, just like happened when I was a kid. You know, like my worldview got shattered when, you know, I was growing up in the 1970s. And, you know, I, and I love my parents, don't get me wrong. They, you know, they're my parents, but you know, they had a lot of baggage, a lot of baggage. And, uh, and my father had a lot of real hardcore psychological baggage that he worked out, 
you know, um, and I came from a small family, just three of us. So there was mm -hmm. no, no real place to turn. Right. Like, Oh, good. Little brother is getting it this time. I can sit this one out. Right. Like I, know, right. I got the brunt of it. And so he went through a very, very difficult time trying to just figure his own shit out. Right. He wasn't a bad guy, but he grew up in really bad circumstances, mm -hmm. which scarred him. So as a result of that, Right. I went through a lot of trauma as a kid. And um, so I think my worldview was shattered through that process. Mm -hmm. And there was a long time ago, I, I, I wrote um, an entry in, in this book. It was on Pluto mm -hmm. and it was on North Atlantic Press. So I was asked to write a story about Pluto or something about Pluto. And I wrote about my father, mm. who was very Plutonian and how my father, you know, kind of took me into the underworld. Um, as a kid for better or worse. Right. So ever since then, it was, you know, I was like, okay, don't get attached to too much, but also just be intensely curious mm -hmm. and try to find out what's behind things. Cause that was also part of it too. I mean, you know, he comes home at night. I'm like, okay, who's this guy going to be right now? Mm -hmm. Who's going to step through that door? So I had to be like super hyper vigilant, which I think I externalized and that became part of me looking at this world. Mm. So the research is part of a hypervigilance, I think, and trying to transform that in a way for myself and other people that can be helpful. Like I can take that on mm -hmm. and I can, I can filter that because I, I was initiated into it. So it's, it's, it's not a foreign thing for me. That makes sense. And I'm curious as to the pieces in your own personal chart that speak to that journey and speak to the work that you do now. Yeah. So I'm a Scorpio rising mm -hmm. um, in 28 degrees Scorpio. So I'm kind of at the end of Scorpio. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I haven't met too many Scorpio rising people that haven't had trauma in their life. Right. Because the 12th house is the place, the thing that's hidden. So my 12th house is all pretty much Scorpio. So what went on behind the scenes? And that's part of it. It's part of, it's the Scorpio rising piece. What is your Mercury? Have, so I, I have a Mercury uh, a moon conjunction in Libra. Okay. So they're, they're separated by like one degree, mm -hmm. which has its pluses and its minuses. The pluses, I have a pretty good memory. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and, I, and I'm pretty intuitive with people. Mm -hmm. Minus is that at, when those degrees are that close, like I was super sensitive as a kid. Yeah. So I had to deal with that, right? I had to deal with like I was one of those kids that cried in school every now and then, mm. right? And that's like a death knell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I also have Chiron in Aquarius, which is kooky, <laughs> and, and I have it in the third house, and I have a I have a grand trine with Mars, Chiron, and, and Venus. So I think it's kind of healing, and I could talk about things in ways that don't freak people out. Yeah. Um, and if people have weird ideas, it's like, oh, so somebody else thinks like this. Great. Right. right? <laughs> I get that. And until it's like, no, your idea is really weird. Okay. I can't handle that idea. Right. <laughs> it's that, like, how much of my weird can people stomach before we hit their wall? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and I think I'm pretty, I don't think I'm that weird. Well, you know, the, the things that I would entertain might be weird or different, but me personally, I'm pretty, I was a lot stranger when I was younger. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I had a lot of weird quirks and I, you know, as I've gotten older, I've just gotten more Saturnian and kind of more, more normal. Having a kid will do that too. That'll, that'll square, square your world up. Right. I've heard that. Yeah. You mentioned um, the inversion and I'm curious, like what your take is on when the inversion started shaping this world, were we always inverted? What will our world be like when we're right side up? Will it change? Like, I can't even imagine given how embedded the inversions are. That's a really good question. And I, 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 f I feel like there was always this layer of a subversive culture underneath the dominant culture, which what, honestly, I don't think it's really always bad, mm -hmm. right? Like there's some interesting things about being subversive at times, especially if the culture is just too locked down 
and too formulaic and too rules and order based, you have to be subversive. Right. Right. And, and, and I think there is always some of that um, in this country. I don't I can't speak to Europe because there are, I think, different sets of morality for the United States and Europe. Right. But for this country, that subversive element seemed to always be tied to sexuality and um, some, you know, challenging the, you know, the, 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 the uh, consensual mores of sexuality. You see that in Hollywood, like all these people in Hollywood were just, you know, flaming, you know, queer or bisexual. And you, and you think, oh yeah, Gary Cooper, man, well, you don't know about Gary Cooper. Right. Right. So there was always that layer of subversive culture here but it wasn't to the point where it became inverted. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the inversion began to take hold in the 1960s a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so are you familiar with like the fourth turning? Do you know what that concept is about? Yeah. All right, so the United States, and again, this is, we're, we're kind of rooting this in the United States, uh, just in terms of like um, anchoring it. Mm -hmm. But it seems like after these major wars, the, the real major, major war, obviously, for us would be in the modern world, World War II, mm -hmm. that there are these seasons of turnings that take place. So we come out of World War II, and it's, there's this thing called the first turning. Mm -hmm. And that's like the spring of historical America. Mm -hmm. And you have John Wayne, and you have Audie Murphy, and you, know, you have all these heroes. It's a time of heroes, Mickey Mantle. Uh, you know, Y.A. Tittle, Johnny Unitas, Rocky Marciano, Joe Lewis, right? It's all hero, hero, hero. Mm -hmm. It's very Aries-like, you know, hey, we won. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the spring of America. We have all this industrialization happening. Um, the baby boom happens. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, lovemaking going on or whatever, right? It's all very Aries-like. Mm -hmm. And then the second turning comes. And the second turning comes during the 1960s. And that first turning is called the way of the hero, by the way. That's what it's called, the way of the hero. And the second turning comes and it's called the way of uh, the artist. Mm -hmm. And it's a very different kind of, now these are the kids that grow up from the baby boomer parent. The, the people that are coming home from the war are not part of the baby boom. Mm -hmm. They're an older generation, right? But they're, they're giving birth to the baby boom kids. So then you have the birth of the anti-hero. And you get into people like Clint Eastwood and Steve McQueen, um, Montgomery Cliff, right? Every, you know, rock and roll starts to kick in. People are experimenting. You know, they're looking at John Wayne like, yeah, you did a movie about the Green Beret. We're not going to go see it. Okay. That's bullshit. Right. So it's a turning and mm -hmm. that becomes the summer, right? That becomes the summer of the fourth turning. And it's also coinciding with like the summer of love. Mm -hmm. So we know that we're in a cycle here. Then the third turning is called the, the season of the nomad. And that takes place in what we would call the fall, right? The fall of America. They're literally, it's at this point where everything is ripe and it can't get much more ripe. All this fruit is there and they have to harvest it. And that begins to take place in the eighties and the nineties. And of course you have things like greed is good, mm -hmm. uh, conspicuous consumption, trickle down economic theory. It's really like, okay, we're pulling in everything now. Mm -hmm. And and that extends to 9-11. 9-11 is the end of that extension. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, we've taken just about as much as we can off this tree now. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do something different. We're going to detonate this thing because it's over, right? And we're, we might be able to get a few more scraps out of it, but it's pretty much over. So 9-11 is the beginning of the inversion. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a dark magical occult ritual that relates to the um, astrological symbol of Gemini because you have the twin towers, mm -hmm. and it takes place on a day where the moon is in Gemini, Saturn is in Gemini, nine eleven. You know you have of course the eleven representing the twins, the two mm -hmm. ones. Uh, nine is an ending, right? You add them together, you get twenty, which is the aeon, which is the beginning of a new time, the end of an old time. Mm -hmm. So that's when the inversion starts. And um, we're, we're not the same after that. We're just, we're just not the same people uh, for a number of different reasons. And then we start to really degrade. And we're now 
um, we're, we're in the time of the sage. Mm -hmm. And this is the winter of America. And you can, you can see it, right? I mean, things are becoming barren. You know, sometimes the store shelves are barren. People's lives are getting barren. People's hopes are getting dashed. Dreams are becoming shattered, right? This is a hard time. You know, this is a hard time to be alive. And we will come into a spring. We will come into a spring. The only problem with that is that those spring periods of the fourth turning are usually kickstarted by a war. So, you know, and, and I believe we're in a war now. I, 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 it's like we're here and we've been here for a while. And I think that's kind of hard to live with because on the one hand, I can go outside right now and I go down the road and get something to eat and nothing's changed, right? But really a lot is changing and it's changing every single moment of the time that we're in. And it, it can lead to some pretty intense cognitive dissonance. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I trust that you enjoyed this first half of my conversation with Robert Phoenix as much as we had sharing it. Please join me over on my Locals page or my Patreon page to listen to the second half, which is at patreon.com slash dannycats or dannycats.locals.com. Be sure to follow Robert Phoenix on all his channels, which you can find at robertphoenix.com. And before you navigate over to any of these places, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Be sure to like this episode, share it with all your friends, and I'll see you over on the other platforms for part two of my conversation with Robert Phoenix. Check out my website, dannycats.com. As well, track all of my latest content on my locals page, dannycats.locals.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you soon, tribe.